Hello listeners, this is your host Annabelle Higgins and welcome to season two of A Teenager's Take on Shakespeare. I hope you enjoyed season one with all of its fascinating insights. Honestly, I have the coolest guests on this show, it's the one thing I will boast about. <laughs> so this season is called Characters of Shakespeare's Plays and it takes its title from William Hazlitt's 1817 book where he talks about all the different plays of Shakespeare with his own personal opinions on them, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't, but <laughs> I'm not going into that now. So in this season, I'm going to be asking each of my guests about their choice of three characters, their favourite, the character they most identify with, and a problematic favourite character that they have something of a love-hate relationship with, because let's face it, there are tons of those in Shakespeare. So... Today, my guest of honour is Stephanie Crugnola. <laughs> Steph hosts the Protest Too Much podcast, a Shakespeare showdown with a new guest every week. She also runs Walking Shadow Shakespeare Project, a company focused on interactive educational performance opportunities and one rehearsal pop-up productions. Thank you so much for joining me today, Steph. Thank you so much for having me. <gasps> I love Steph's podcast so much, honestly. <laughs> If you haven't yet, you need to go listen to Annabelle's episode because it is incredible. I, I can talk about Isabella for a long time. So my first question to you, it comes from season one. I've asked all my guests this so far and I really want to continue this because this podcast is really about getting into Shakespeare uh, from a young age, as I have, and from any age, to be honest. So how did you get into Shakespeare? So when you say any age, that's kind of, it's funny because when... Me and my sisters were all, my mom read to us all the time. We were just like super nerds with books. And so when my older sister was in fourth grade, I don't know how she did it, but she convinced her fourth grade teacher. So this would be, let's see, fourth grade, she would be like 11. Um, she convinced her teacher to let her do a performance of The Tempest with their class. And she edited it down to like 20 minutes. She directed it and she played Prospero. And I just have this memory of going to watch her do this play in this like uh, black cape with silver stars and moons on it. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That's what cool looks like. <laughs> that is incredible. First of all, how the heck did she manage to persuade the teacher? Honestly, I don't know. He was pretty he was pretty cool himself. Uh, I, I guess she just asked. And if you're a fourth grade teacher, you're probably like, OK, sure. Like if a kid comes to you with something like that, I can't imagine saying no to it. So, yeah, yeah that's how I got introduced to Shakespeare. That's amazing. It's always nice to be introduced to Shakespeare with your family as something that you can do as a group. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a really fascinating story. Honestly, you will hear so many cool stories on this podcast. Yeah, you just kind of took that and ran with it. <laughs> well, in that case, time to move on to your three characters. So, first of all, who is your all-time favourite Shakespeare character? And, most importantly, why? I have a feeling I already know, but... <laughs> yeah, so you you did guess this one. It is Hal from Henry the Fourth Part One, Henry the Fourth Part Two, and Henry Five. And the why for this is is because we get to see him grow up as a character, and we get to see him make mistakes, and then we get to see how he owns those mistakes and and becomes the the Henry Five leader that he is. And he is such a strong, powerful character, but is so deeply flawed, especially in his youth. 
that it's 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 rare to see characters listen in Shakespeare. You get a lot of characters who act or who react. But I feel like Hal takes the time to listen and think and grow through those three plays. So we see him in his kind of like rash behavior. He has some some seeds of what he will become as king in Henry the Fourth Part One. And then Henry the Fourth Part Two, obviously, he grapples with that and makes the decision to cut Falstaff off. And he really kind of grows up in that moment. But then you see in Henry V, you know, his his tennis ball speech is very um, kind of very much like a flashback to the reactive boy that he was in Henry IV Part One, but you see him grow. The scene with Michael Williams um, right before St. Crispin's Day is one of my favorite scenes in all of Shakespeare because he's sitting and in disguise listening to his people and learning and growing from them and having like an honest, earnest conversation. And I think that there's so much of his awkwardness as just a person in general and his willingness to listen and grow that I admire in the character. And of course it's, you know, it's easier when we have three whole plays to follow him. Right. But that's why I love Hal so much. Yeah. I feel like Hal really gets overshadowed by full stuff mm. in terms of like critical discourse. And just in general, when people talk about the Henry the fourth plays, they talk about full stuff. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good observation. Cause he is a, uh, for lack of a better word, a, a very big character mm. and has such a massive presence in the play and provides so much of the comedy, but that comedy doesn't work if it doesn't have Hal to bounce off yeah. of. And Falstaff as a character, in my opinion, doesn't work unless he sincerely cares about Hal and Hal sincerely looks up to him as a father figure. That's what makes the relationship work. It's not a, a one-way street. Even in Merry Wives, Falstaff doesn't work if he doesn't have Mistress Ford and Mrs. Page to bounce off of and to interact with so Hal is such an important part of that relationship yeah. Falstaff actually lives off of mooching off of others you know <laughs> like if he doesn't have other people to mooch off of he's kind of stuck yeah I guess so it would it makes sense that in the discourse that he's kind of taking all the credit for the relationship that he and Hal had together yeah Falstaff does that with everything <laughs> with you know the death of Hotspur he takes the credit or he tries to take the credit for it and it's, yes. it's all these little things with the robbery, the cattle robbery. Initially, he talks about, I think, like four or five assailants, and then it suddenly gets to like 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just it is funny and it is good humor, but that humor doesn't work if Hal isn't like egging him on knowing where he's going to go with that joke. Yeah. And another great scene where they assume the roles of the king. And so, yeah, initially, mm -hmm. Falstaff, as the king, is saying, banish the rest of thy company, but Falstaff, you know, sweet, gentle, very nice, definitely not, you know, drunken Falstaff. <laughs> and then, yeah, he switches the roles. And I am talking about Falstaff too much. Yeah, that's... No, I mean, but it's... But it is crucial development for Hal because that moment is one of my favorites in Henry IV Part One, And I, the first time I saw it, and I don't know if it's been kind of replicated in other performances, but Tom Hiddleston's uh, Hollow Crown performance as hell. There's the moment where um, Falstaff as the king is saying, banish Bardolph, banish Nim, banish whoever, but um, don't banish Jack. And Hal says, I do, I will. And, uh, T. Hiddles uh, takes his his time with that and and takes a breath and like 
you can see that growth in him. You can see the king he knows he's going to have to be. And that I will is such a painful moment for him. And such just like it takes all the air out of the room. It takes every everyone by surprise. And I think that if it's understated and it's it's introspective, then we see the I know the not old man speech at the end of Henry Four part two. We see that in Hal so clearly and it's so powerful even in this comedic scene yeah there's a piece of music that i have mentioned on previous episodes so listeners please forgive me but it's by algar and it's a symphonic study based on falstaff and falstaff's character and there's a really great theme in the piece which is called prince hal's theme which recurs and gets stronger and stronger throughout the piece until it finally overpowers the falstaff theme and I think that's really, like, it's really cool to listen to that. I will send you wow. the piece after this. Yes, please. <laughs> and one of the other things I love about this piece of music is that Elgar actually wrote detailed notes about what each part of the music is supposed to represent. That's so cool. From where he falls asleep, you know, in the tavern after the robbery, it details what each section of the music is meant to represent, going from Henry IV Part One to Henry V. Fabulous, honestly. Yeah, that's really stunning. That's really cool. Yeah. So are there any particular moments with Hal that you think stand out? I mean, I know he's a great character, but which particular moments stick with you? Yeah. Uh, so one of my favorites is, so I actually got to play Hal in Henry the Fourth Part One a few years ago here in Austin. And the first cut of the script had cut this, you know, two line, this two line speech, four line speech, however long the actual speech is, but they had cut it out and I fought to put those two. I was like, you can cut any other lines in this play. You can cut whatever you want, but please give me these two lines back because it is, it's an act three, scene three. It's when he kind of goes back to the tavern, the Boar's Head Tavern for the last time. And as he leaves, he says, the land is burning. Percy stands on high and either we or they must lower lie. And it's in this whole uh, kind of crude, crass scene between Falstaff and Mistress Quigley. Henry comes in and he's kind of joking with them. But then he starts to get really serious because the war is happening. He's just given Falstaff his army. He's just, you know, planning for the war. And these last two lines are so Henry five to me. And you don't see until this moment, you don't see any hint that Hal can be, can become Henry V. You're like, how does, how does this end up being this? And then he hits you with these two lines and the strength in them, the power in them, and just the purpose that he has, he knows what he'll become. And finally, the audience can see it as well because of that, like, shift in him and after that it's fight time and battle time and he starts to transition into the henry five we eventually see him as but those two lines i think are so powerful for that play because we don't ever we don't get we just get the playful howl up until then and this is when we finally see it click for him i think that's really incredible that's actually not a couple of lines that i've really paid much attention to before yeah, they're real. They kind of just like slip in there. Uh, they're not very purposeful in terms of the plot or anything. But to me, they're so powerful for character development for him. Yeah, because Hal does have a lot of developing to do. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I think of all the characters, 
in Shakespeare's plays, actually, when I think about it, how probably grows and changes the most. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that that's a fully fleshed out argument because give me some time to do the research and I will probably contradict myself. Yeah. But yeah, (laughs) I had someone uh, on my show and they were talking about Queen Margaret and she also has a series of four plays that she grows and changes over. So I think she would be the competition for Hal here. Okay, yeah, true. That's actually a really interesting thing. We should try doing that at some point. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. It has too much style. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I love it. Ah, sounds amazing. So what you were talking about when you see these glimpses of Henry V in Young Hal, Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about the scene in Henry IV Part Two where Hal thinks his father's died and he takes his crown and his father's not dead and then his father wakes up, sees his crown missing, sees his son and he says, when Hal tries to justify himself, he says, thy wish was father to thy thought. I don't know, that little line has really stuck with me, possibly because I drew a picture of that particular moment. Yeah, I remember. That whole scene, I think, is is so intimate for being in the middle of a play because grief and the exchange of power is something that, you know, most of us are never going to have to uh, deal with it in modern times. Like, we're not, uh, unless you've got secret royalty, Annabelle, you and I were never going to have to take over a crown. <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. Right. <laughs> but that kind of, there's so much emotion and and grief wrapped up in the death of a parent, period. And then when you're in this position of being a prince, there's so much more. There's so much more baggage that comes with that. And I think that this is something that Hal has desperately said he does not want for so long for a play and a half at this point. He's been so resistant to acting like a prince that he has so much more to work through than I think maybe others in that in that position or at least others that we've seen in that position in in plays and in in media. I think it's it's almost I, I, I see this moment as almost a positive reading from Henry IV's perspective, because yes, he it's scolding and yes, he's upset that his crown has been quote unquote stolen by his son. Um, he he interprets it as as Hal uh, kind of killing him off before he's dead. But I think there's to me a, a joy in that or a pride yeah. or relief, maybe that he's finally seeing his son ready to take this. That's such a cool reading of it. And that might just be because I, I hate sad, disappointed parents. But like, <laughs> you know, like I I just want to see that relief in Henry IV because it's all he's wanted is for Hal to want the crown and to act like it. So why would he be upset at this change in him or at this perceived change in him? Yeah. Oh, I've never looked at it that way before. But that makes so much sense. And when you think of it in terms of the soliloquy, I know you all and will a while uphold the unyoked humour of your idleness, uh, that one. When you think of it, he's like, yeah, and yet herein will I imitate the sun that doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world. It's it's really cool. He wants to make himself look better by, you know, emerging from the shadows and becoming so suddenly virtuous, like creating such a stark contrast that the light seems brighter. Now, I think that soliloquy is so interesting because it's one of the times where, you know, when you have a soliloquy, we have to trust that Shakespeare says that that character is telling the truth, right? We've just got to trust that they're being honest in those moments. But I don't know if I believe it. I kind of think he's 
that soliloquy, I almost see more as Hal justifying his behavior to himself. Not necessarily, I don't think he necessarily like is doing, he's like, ooh, I'm going to trick him into thinking I'm, you know, a, a rascal and then I'll show him all wrong. I don't think that's his intention. I think he's just like, well, I'm not going to stop being a hooligan. So here's a way that I can make it work for me later on. It's more justifying his behavior rather than like planting seeds for future success. Once again, yeah, that makes sense. That's yeah, that's another reading I did not. I've clearly thought a lot about Hal. (laughs) Hal's actually not one of the characters I've paid as much attention to. And to be honest, Falstaff neither. I've just, I've heard a lot about Falstaff because you can't really do much reading about Shakespeare without running into Falstaff a lot. True. (laughs) So it's been really interesting talking about Hal. I can definitely see why he's your favourite character. (laughs) And uh, honestly, well done for answering that because if anybody asked me who my favourite character was, I would just blank. It's so hard. <laughs> it is. It's definitely tough. So I'm glad you asked for three different characters because this next one that we're talking about rivals Hal. So yes, yes, yes. So this next character is a character that you identify with. So who is this character? So this character is Beatrice from Much Ado About Nothing. And I feel like this is probably a pretty standard answer I feel like (laughs) there are probably a lot of folks who identify with Beatrice and the reason that I I feel her so strongly is there is joy humor and also frustration in her life and I think that she's a very modern a, a character that's very modernly written I guess in the way that she has agency over her choices and Um, the people that she surrounds herself with, the fights, the battles that she's willing to fight. But also there's so much that she still can't do. It's like you've come so far and there's still so far left to go. And I think we can apply that to a lot of different things in the world. And for me personally, the number of times I in 2022 have been like, if I were a man, this thing would be so much easier. Or if I were a man, this this path would open or or I could you know do this and I am very much like uh I'm gonna knock down doors until there's none left but like still there's that inherent frustration that like there are some things I just can't do I would eat his heart in the marketplace yeah that frustration that anger is still so prevalent around the world and yet she still has so much joy right She's able to have fun. She fiercely loves Hero. She is willing to to fight forever for her cousin. That kind of sibling or cousin or familial love is so strong and so powerful. She looks at the most powerful man in the play who asks her to marry him. And she's like, nah, no, no, thank you. She knows what she wants. And she's given herself permission to take what she wants instead of, you know, waiting for something to come along. And um, you could argue, yes, she lets herself get manipulated by, you know, the the noting scenes and all that. But I think she really loves Benedict. And I think they're truly good for each other. They make each other want to be better. We see their growth in the second half of the play, each of them individually. They're a little less sharp. They're trying. And what more could you ask for in a partner than someone who wants, who makes you want to be a better person? And that is what she gets. And I just think that her story is so real 
Um, I, like I said, I identify with it very strongly. And I just think that that she's rad. <laughs> and the fact that, yeah, even when she's already in love with Benedict and he asks her to marry him and she's, uh, she says that it, you have to do this thing for me and she just says, kill Claudio. Two words and Benedict falters. And she's like, fine, okay, we're not getting married then. Like, if you can't stand up for the people I love, you can't stand up for me. And that is so powerful. Because if you if you compare that to other plays, like ugh, a play that I really struggle to get behind, The Two Gentlemen of Verona, where, you know, you have Proteus and Valentine. They, they're like brothers. And then Sylvia shows up and that's it. Everything's gone. And why? But Beatrice... And Hero, they have this beautiful, close relationship. Hero is naive. You can tell she is naive. And Beatrice is like, mm-hmm, don't trust men as far as you can throw them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we can we can talk about Hero and Claudio all day long. I think Claudio is a big old ding-dong and doesn't deserve Hero. But there's also so much more at play there. And And Beatrice is the type that is never going to kind of relax. Like, she is going to protect. She, we can imagine she would protect Hero as long as they're alive, right? Like that level of protection isn't going to go away. So if Claudio tries any more of his BS ever again, like, you know, she's going to be still on it. Um, and yeah, I think that that's something that's, it's there too often there's competition between women, right? So to see a really strong female friendship is beautiful. It's so nice to see that. But also, yeah, the banter. Like, I think we were. <laughs> and the video, yes. Yeah, and she's funny. She gets to be funny. And Benedict appreciates that she's funny. They go back and forth and like, yeah, he's like, oh, you know, she can't beat me in a battle of wits or whatever. That kind of like subtext of his frustration. But like he acknowledges how smart she is and how funny. Yeah, it's great. Their relationship is really fun. It's also exacerbated by the fact that I got to play Beatrice opposite my now husband as Benedict. And getting to kind of like have that sort of banter and fun on stage with him is a, such a great memory that I have. So that's, you know, another part of it as well. That is very sweet. I'm a big sap for sentimentality. So I find that very adorable. Beatrice's line, you always end with the Jade's trick. I know you evolved. I always kind of wonder what history have they got? Yeah, me, me too naturally. <laughs> yeah, there are definitely conspiracies out there or theories or whatever it is, but I think it's very plausible at their ages that they had a serious relationship, that they had something that um, was very important to her. And it's kind of like once that ended, however that ended, that affected her. And that made her kind of like closed off to the idea of love in a relationship after that. And so to be able to reconnect and re-come together is also really a really cool part of their story, I think. That's another thing. Beatrice isn't a woman who falls in love immediately. She has to learn to love. With a lot of other characters in Shakespeare's plays, Miranda and Ferdinand in The Tempest, in, a, in an instant, they're already married. Rosalind and Orlando in As You Like It. Yep. That's another part that's, that makes it so real to me is that you have to work for a relationship you have to work for love and you have to work to make yourself you know a person who is compatible and communicates well and you have strength in yourself before you can have strength in a relationship and I think that that's something that the two of them do really well we see them grow into it rather than just 
kind of snapping your fingers and it's love. Because, yeah, the idea that they have history might suggest that they tried this experiment when they were younger and it just didn't work because they weren't mature enough to appreciate what love was and what love meant. Yeah. The idea that, you know, Benedict ended it with a Jade's trick suggests, yeah, he, he wasn't emotionally available for that kind of relationship yet. And neither was Beatrice. And you can see that in the beginning when she says, you know, I would rather have my dog bark at a crow than a man sway. It's <laughs> yeah. very funny. But also you can see that she has put up so many walls. She is very averse to this idea. And then all it takes is the idea that Benedict still loves her for her to acknowledge that her feelings still exist. I do think they still like each other, even at the beginning. Yes. Yes. If you can't have that, like, chemistry and it, yeah. <laughs> it's only when she thinks that he really does love her too, that she allows herself to acknowledge that because she she allows herself not to tear down the walls, but open the gate and kind of let him in. She doesn't take her guard down yet, but she's prepared to let someone in if she's fairly sure that he won't hurt her. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's so real. <laughs> it's the only way I could describe it. It's just so modern and real as like a person. She feels so full. And yeah, their relationship is definitely one of the best in Shakespeare's plays. Yeah, I agree. I'm hard-pressed to think of a better one, honestly. Yeah, I think that if I had to think about it, I could come up with something. And I know we've talked about this on Protest Too Much too, but you know, I somebody throws something at me and I'm now all of a sudden I have to argue that Hero <laughs> and Claudio are the best relationship. And I'm like, oh no. <gasps> no, did you actually have to do that? I can't remember. There is one that I had to do and I was not a fan of it. I was like so grumpy having to argue it. <laughs> no, you can't, you can't support Claudio. <laughs> nope. He's so annoying, honestly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, his sentimentality, for one thing, is full of platitudes. It's That's not the word I want. It's full of cheap sentiment. It's full of, you know... Can the world buy such a jewel? Yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. It's all surface. It's all... Luck. I saw her before the war, but, like, I was busy thinking about the war, so I couldn't I couldn't think about her. But now, like, the war's over. I need some... I need new, a new toy to amuse myself with. And then he, he says something like, I persuaded myself that I did like her before the war. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, if you have to convince yourself, it's not great. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And Hero, she goes in blind. Poor thing. I hope she's happy. <laughs> I hope she's happy. Uh, I don't even want to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I've heard one idea talked about is that Much Ado About Nothing was Love's Labour's one. Yes. Which, like, do you have any opinions on that? Any thoughts? Um, uh, yeah, I can see that Rosalind and Barone, I can see them mirroring Beatrice and Benedict, mm -hmm. but I, I feel like Love's Labors ends with more of a resolution than Much Ado starts with, if you know what I mean. Like, I feel like, I don't know, I just, I think that that takes away from the work that the characters in Much Ado have done to get to where they are and the work that they do through the play to get to their happy ending because the characters in Love's Labors do so much work to get to their ending that it's, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't love it, but I see it. Yeah. See, I, I have, I do have an opinion on this and it is not, it's not fully fleshed out. It is just an opinion that I have yet to investigate. I don't think, like, I don't think of it as, as like, a sequel. As many people, like, there are some people who want to find, you know, a Love's Labours of One. What happened after that year of waiting did... I think of it as, like, 
look at what these people did. Look at what these guys did for love. All this work down the drain. Just look at this mess. Now, here's another play where people put some effort into love and it actually pays off. You know, they do it the right way. I think of these as two contrasting stories. Like Shakespeare's like, look at this mess. Look, look at this. I like that. And then he starts telling these the story of Beatrice and Benedict and of, yeah, Hero and Claudio is problematic. But, but there's a journey that they go through. Yeah, they go on a journey and it's deeply psychological. Because as the friar says, after he says that Hero has to play dead, you know, in death, like because people don't prize the things they have as much as they do the things they have lost, mm-hmm. he will remember her love and then she will be restored in virtue to him, which is problematic <laughs> yeah but but i think it's it's more psychological than love's labor's lost yeah i think that's a really great way to look at it because yeah like that's kind of what i was trying to say earlier is that it does not i don't like it i don't like the theory that it's a sequel but your take on it here is how you lose love you know how to lose a guy in whatever days versus how to have your happy ending i think that's a great way of of looking at the relationship between those two plays yeah, this is where love's labor's lost. The guys have sworn to three years of study and celibacy. That does not work. They write increasingly terrible poems. They battle for women in disguise as Russians. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's that whole... I struggle with love's labors because, like, yes, it's cute that we have, like, four relationships that we get to explore. And yes, I love that at the end, the women are like, we need to put this on pause for a year. I love that. But like their whole like, if you can't, you you don't know who I am based on the jewel that I'm wearing or write me terrible poetry. And like, it's just the whole, the, the men in that play are such trash guys. I just don't like them. They like have no, if they can't stick to their, their blood oath, you think that they're going to stick with you? <laughs> no, ma'am. Exactly. It's like love's labors, but the whole idea of love's labor in that play is very much a mockery. It's a satire. Yes, yes, yes. It's that idea that if men put in any ounce of work that they're entitled to the relationship at the end of it. Like, I hate that. And I love in that vein that they don't get what they quote unquote want at the end of it. They have to wait. They have to put it on pause. That's why I like love's labors. The rest of it, I'm like, well, ain't it just like a man? (laughs) <laughs> yeah I, I think yeah if you look at it as two contrasting stories I don't want to say like moral stories but lessons as such like this is how you put effort this is how you put effort into love and totally screw it up <laughs> yeah and this is how much ado is how you explore what it really means to love someone right right and you go through the hardships and you go through the rough spots because they definitely go through the rough spots before they make it to the altar yeah right and owning your mistakes none of the guys in love's labors do that but pretty much all of them in uh in in much ado like don pedro He tries to mend that relationship with Don John and then he recognizes at the end that it was his fault for trusting him. Claudio mourns Hero and does apologize, I think. I don't actually I would be interested to see if he actually apologizes or not, but he feels remorse. Um, And Benedict recognizes the kind of ding dong that he's been and 
how to make himself better for Beatrice. Yeah. And that that's what's so good about it. And yeah, Beatrice is at the heart of that. She is very much at the heart of this idea. This is what you have to do. You have to put effort into love. Because, yeah, in Love's Labour's Lost, I feel like it's very much... It's basically, yeah, there's a man and there's a woman, equal pairings on each side. You don't need to put much effort into it. It's just a dramatic... Right. <laughs> it's a theatrical device. You know, put them together. Boom, you've got a romantic comedy. Yeah. <laughs> you don't see the work going into that. You see awful poetry and convenience and yeah exactly and you see guys who don't know how to keep their word have their heads turned by the first pretty person they see yep yep that's exactly what it is but moving on now to the final character of today's episode so this character is the problematic fave you find them fascinating but you struggle with them because i mean i think there are of characters in Shakespeare virtually all of them to be honest yeah Um, they're not perfect they are not perfect they literally (laughs) they are written as flawed individuals and it's the flaws that make them so fascinating and it's the human side of them that's so interesting so which character is your love hate problematic fave yeah so this was a really tough question for me when you when you said to prepare this. I was like, I don't know. Um, and naturally, I think that all of the villains in Shakespeare have something interesting about them and something charming about them that makes them like fascinating. You like want to love them, but also they're villains. Um, and so I chose a I chose a character that isn't a villain, or is he like? It depends on how you read this play. And so I chose Brutus from Julius Caesar because I think he is a fascinating character study and I don't ever know how to feel about him. And I'm so curious to like hear from your perspective, kind of your take on Brutus and where he lands in that like villain category or he's doing what he thinks is right. But when does that become so do so does any other Shakespeare villain? Right. Um, So I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on Brutus. Honestly, <laughs> I, I am so confused as to what to think about Brutus as well. Right? You, like, I, he's not a character that fits in any category. He he just doesn't. No. He's kind of a protagonist and he's kind of not. The play is called Julius Caesar, so you'd automatically assume the protagonist to be Caesar. But he's kind of sidelined in his own play. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then we also have Mark Antony vying for the spotlight. And in the, in the end, you know, Mark Antony comes out on top and the roman people side with him and brutus's justification to the people is not that he loved caesar less but that he loved rome more hmm 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 what like what do you think of that (laughs) yeah so that's why that's why i struggle so much because like look at this character who by all intents and purposes, Shakespeare leads us to think that he is the moral compass of this story. Everyone else in this play acts on emotion and Brutus acts on logic, right? Because Caesar is uh, emotional. Calpurnia says, stay home. And he's like, well, what will they think of me if I listen to a woman? Like, I'm not going to get out. They ask for forgiveness. He says, I will not be moved like I have I've said this and this is how it's going to be he's very emotionally stubborn 
uh, Cassius is very emotional. He is holding on to this like grudge against Caesar and this idea that he's earned something better somehow. And he reacts emotionally to everything. Cassius, I think, is one of the most emotional characters in all of Shakespeare. Cassius, yeah, he loses his cool very fast. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, Antony, also very emotional. Keeps it together in front of other people a little bit better than some of the other characters do, like than maybe a Cassius does. But like his speech, um, oh gosh, uh, right after caesar's dead and it's the let's uh cry havoc and let slip the dogs of war that speech is pure emotion and fun fact cry havoc is what i originally wanted to name protest too much but some random podcast is called that and they haven't done an episode in like seven years but i like tried to email them and be like can i have your name and heard nothing so that's where protest too much came from but so, yeah, I wanted to name Cry Havoc just because I think it's so strong and so powerful. And it's so emotional from Antony. And Brutus is the only person who seems to have any sort of solid head about him in this entire play. But what good is that if the logic leads to murder? <laughs> is is he right? Is Caesar unsavable as a leader is he right to have given antony the uh space to do a funeral speech right because if he hadn't done that brutus had the crowd on his side he said hey y'all hated caesar less than i love you guys so this is why i did what i did and they're like okay and and <laughs> absolutely. that to me is something that i think is lost sorry i'm like absolutely rambling on this um but something that I think is lost in performance of Caesar a lot is this idea of anger and crowd kind of mentality. The fact that the Friends Romans Countryman speech is so often taken out of context. We often hear people like stand up on a pedestal and say Friends Romans Countryman. And it is not he does not have the crowd's attention. It is that is a begging line. It is a desperate line. It's not commanding. It's not powerful. It is, I am drowning. These, these thousands of people are screaming at me. They are screaming for my head and I need to stop. I need to like scream at them to quiet them down. It is so desperate. And I don't think we see that enough from Antony. And I think it's like, it shows on the flip side how powerful Brutus is to have swayed this crowd so quickly. Yeah. I, I have so many thoughts about Julius Caesar as a play. One thing, yeah, we, we don't see we don't see Caesar that much. We don't see where he's offered the crown. We just hear Cassius and Brutus talking about it. So we don't get to form our own judgment of whether he's a tyrant or a decent guy. We just get to see him in a domestic setting with his wife. We we do get to see him in public setting for a bit. And you were talking about the Friends Roman's countryman speech being yet literally a plea for attention, a plea for, look, please, please wait before you kill me, please. I've got something to say. I come not to praise Caesar, but to bury him. The effect that Antony has on the crowd is so powerful that they end up killing uh, Sinner the Poet in another scene just because he has the name of one of the conspirators. This is the degree of animosity that he has stirred up within the Roman people. 
And the thing is, because we don't have that strong opinion of Caesar, because we don't get to see him that much, it's hard to know whether the crowd are right. It's hard to form our own judgment of that, just because we don't see Caesar enough. And so when Brutus is talking about loving Rome more than I loved Caesar, we don't have too much to justify that. We don't have too much evidence. Yeah, it's so uh, I directed this. I directed Caesar, oh gosh, uh, seven years ago at this point. But I did a kind of punk rock aesthetic and we built our own. When I say we, I mean one of our tech crew uh, built a whole like internal internet. And so all of our characters were live tweeting. We had a projection screen on one of the sides of the stage that had a Roman Twitter, basically. And so characters would, actors would be tweeting from the stage and it would show up live as a live feed. So it was different every night um, showing up on the, the screen. But the point of that is like, how many times on Twitter has someone been uh, kind of piled on because they have a name that's maybe like one letter off? from someone else who did something super controversial. So now everyone's like looking up their Twitter and they're dogpiling on this person. And that person's like, listen, that's not me. And they just, it keeps coming. And it's very much that sin of the poet kind of thing. And so, or even if you have two people with the same name on Twitter and everyone's yelling at this one, he's like, nah, someone else. Um, That kind of mob mentality and the way that once something sparks, in a crowd on social media, it just kind of like snowballs into this massive, massive, massive thing. And that's all Caesar is. It's just the crowd is not uh, using social media. They're just talking to each other like in person, but they are a literal crowd. So I, it was really fun to get to explore the impact that that kind of mob mentality has on the play. Yeah, and, and that mob mentality as well. It makes it hard for the viewer to on their own assumptions as well because they change their minds so easily. We can only go off with the words of the politicians. And since when are people in politics honest? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and there's so much to be learned from that, right? Like reading critically. And that's, if I've taught my students anything, it is to read things critically, find all of the information and form your own ideas because clickbait headlines have gotten so out of control that the intention might be right but like if you actually read through it it's not it's not anything like this not what happened or it's a a twist on what has happened so like finding your own information and knowing all of the facts is so so important yeah I think Caesar teaches a lot of good life lessons in <laughs> in that kind of way. Such an interesting play. Mm-hmm. I used to be quite frightened of the history-related plays when I was young. I just kind of looked at them, oh, history, that's slightly scary. So I kind of stuck to the, the comedies. I read some of the tragedies as well. But it was only when I was around 12, 13 that I started exploring the other ones. And the history is only read with the show must go online, just so I could know what I was supposed to draw for fan art every week. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> But I realised that they were so interesting. And I I already read Julius Caesar, but I reread it and I started paying more attention to it. And I started drawing some parallels between characters in that play and characters in another play. Like Brutus's reaction to his wife's death is really interesting to me because when I saw it staged, her reaction, because Brutus was female in this production, it was at the Globe, her reaction was kind of muted. It wasn't as powerful. Cassius asked, how escaped I killing when I crossed you thus? 
but either either that's numbness mm. or it's a far more complicated relation than we think because we have the whole scene where Portia, you know, she wounds herself in the leg to show her devotion. And that scene is really powerful when done right. But we see this kind of coldness almost in Brutus's reaction. And when you think of like Macduff in Macbeth, when he hears that his children and his wife have been murdered, mm-hmm. that reaction... Honestly, that scene, I think, is the one that stays with me the most from Macbeth. Mm-hmm. Along with another moment of humanity where Lady Macbeth's like, I would have killed Duncan, but he looked so much like my father as he slept. If he hadn't, then I, I had done it. Yeah. It's these small moments of humanity that are powerful. And that's another thing I wanted to talk about with Brutus. There's, I can't remember which scene this is, mm-hmm. but I, I really loved this when it was done at the Globe because they put a little song with it. And there's the boy Lucius. Brutus has asked him to play some music and they used Sonnet 27. It's one of my favourites, actually. Weary with toil, I haste me to my bed. The deer repose for limbs with travel tired, but then begins a journey in my head to work my mind when body's work's expired. Oh, that's great. And this sonnet, it gets more and more romantic as it goes through, but these first lines, the idea that even when Brutus tries to rest... He can't stop these thoughts from consuming him. We see that with Richard III as well. We see him in his tent the night before his battle with Henry VII. Yeah, yeah. And we and we have ghosts in both. And that kind of like restless torment is is reflected in both of these scenes. And I think that's a really cool parallel to draw. Yeah. So the lines I wanted to quote from Brutus here in that scene, Lucius eventually falls asleep over his instrument. And Brutus, he asks him like to wake up initially. And then he decides against it. He says... It is no matter. Enjoy the honey-heavy dew of slumber. Thou hast no figures nor no fantasies, which busy care draws in the brains of men. Therefore thou sleepst so sound. And then we have, you know, Macbeth's line, Macbeth does murder sleep. And we have this deep moral complication of what's happened. Brutus, you can tell, he's having having second thoughts about what he's done. He's thinking, was this actually right? Was it not? He, he doesn't even know where to put himself. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. He is so confused. He can't rest. He can't put these things from his head. He, as he says earlier in the play, between the acting of, of a dreadful thing and the thought of, I am horribly mangling Shakespeare here. Please forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> he says all the rest is like a hideous phantasma. It doesn't feel real. All of this, it's a living nightmare. The suspense before he actually does it and then living with the consequences of it because yeah julius caesar is killed basically in the middle of the play yeah the play covers the aftermath in such detail that yeah it is clearly about how the conspirators who have murdered caesar react to this and i am rambling at this point but i have a lot of feelings about this yeah and there are a lot of feelings to be had and i think like a lot of people don't do Caesar they don't direct Caesar or produce it because it's so difficult to direct the second half of that play because you've hyped Brutus up in the beginning as this moral compass and then you take him away you take that away from him and then it's so hard for a director to really explore that the second half of this play after the funeral a lot of people I think don't even realize there is a second half of this play (laughs) like the funeral scene everyone's like friends Romans countrymen and we're out but there's so much gold to explore towards the end too. And not to mention, um, I think that a lot of a lot of the way that you can judge a character is how their servants 
treat them or how their servants feel about them. Because when we see Act 5, Scene 5, Brutus tries to get his servant to kill him. That scene is really powerful. He has all of his men around him and he asks uh, two of them to kill him and they both say no. He asks the third, Volumnius, and he says, that's not an office for a friend, my lord. And so you see that Brutus has power over these men, but they see themselves as friends. They don't see themselves as beneath him in any way and they refuse to, to do this for them, for him. And then one of them does, uh, Strato does, and like it's finally after he's begged and begged and begged, um, finally they're willing to to put Brutus out of this misery that he's been living in. And that is very reflective of um, the end of Antony and Cleopatra, actually, with Anabarbus, when Anabarbus falls on his own sword for betraying Antony, like to see since that's a sequel to Caesar, like it's really interesting to see the devotion of their followers and how much Antony and Brutus have respectively had an impact on their followers. So like, who's, who is the better character? Who is the villain? And who is like, like when we get to see this roundness from both of them, I don't know. I just don't know what to think about Brutus. So I thought it was really interesting to bring him to the table today. (laughs) He's such, such a hard character to talk about. And then, because, yeah, he commits suicide at the end of the play. With the help of one of his men. Yeah, yes. with, with the help <laughs> of one of his men. And that kind of complicates things. Yeah. I read a brilliant book called Death by Shakespeare by Dr. Catherine Harkup. She wrote about Ophelia and Hamlet and the negative connotations with suicide in Shakespeare's day, how people who had committed suicide weren't given the rights to the same, well, rights as such as the... <sighs> I don't even know how to put it, as those who died by natural causes, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or murder. <laughs> or that, yeah. But when we see Brutus on stage, and then Antony calls him, this was the noblest Roman of them all. You know, this death by kind of suicide. It was, like, the... It, right. It's really complicated. It's so hard to place him. Yep. And, like, if you look at you look at the way his men feel about him, but then also you look at the way his quote unquote em- enemy feels about him. Antony comes right out like you just said. This was the noblest Roman of them all. Everyone else did this out of envy, but Brutus thought that he was doing the right thing, and that kind of like praise, I guess, or or admiration that Antony still has for Brutus even after this whole half of the play that's been just war. Like that's it shows you nobody knows what to think about Brutus. Yeah, after the deeply, deeply satirical uh, Brutus is an honourable man. Sure, of course, yeah. (laughs) It's really interesting that he finally, yeah, he finally says, yeah, this was the noblest Roman of them all. It's like we talked about earlier, you know, in Much Ado, pretended to be dead and everybody thought about her differently. Everybody who doubted her thought about her differently. After, I think he sees Brutus dead, Antony's able to put things into perspective a little bit more. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really that's a really interesting way to kind of now that the war is done, he's won. He's able to compartmentalize that a little bit. At at the Globe, at the end, like Brutus, he was about to be stabbed by his servant. She was, sorry. Instead, 
instead of you know the knife stage knife piercing piercing brutus instead she turned and walked off stage and out of the theater and they cut Anthony coming in afterwards. It ended after that. And there was the jig at the end. That really left me thinking. Yeah. Wow. That's really interesting. And that puts a whole extra layer on it, doesn't it? Yeah. Does it end with Brutus? Is Brutus the main character then that the play ends when he does? Right. 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 Yeah. Because I, re- I really enjoyed seeing a female Brutus. Yeah. I thought it was cool. Yep. I, mm, that's that's really interesting that's really cool what a weird what a weird complicated character that i don't like it's not like and like yes he does have a hand in murdering caesar but like it's not like a an iago where you can objectively say like that man is a villain <laughs> that man is a bad guy uh you can't really objectively say that with brutus i don't uh, i don't know yeah brutus you chose such a good character there because <laughs> He can't be categorized. He literally defies categorization. It does teach a lesson about how history is written. They say history is written by the winners, but who's the winner? Yes, absolutely. That is also hard to decide. You could say it's Antony, Mm -hmm. but even that, as we see in Antony and Cleopatra, how does that go? Right. Antony abandons Rome almost immediately. So, who? yeah, yep. Ah. This was really fun to get to talk about, Annabelle. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Steph. This has been this has been so much fun. I could ramble for days. Same. <laughs> but that that's what this show is for. This is for rambling. This is for a very hyper, overexcited, bardolita teenager to talk with some of the coolest people she knows <laughs> about the things she loves. And I am so grateful for that. And I'm grateful for the listeners as well. So Virtual hugs to you all. Thank you. You are amazing. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode, everybody. And I'll see you in a moment for the Teenager's Take. Welcome to the first Teenager's Take of season two. Talking with Steph was a bit of a podcasting milestone for me, because if this podcast ever gets anywhere near protest too much as standard, I will be... I will be overwhelmed with joy. Her character choices were similarly really interesting to talk about, and she brought quite an array to the table. So let's have a quick look at each one in turn. Pal. Ah, Pal, the young prince who goes from a cheeky little East Cheap rogue to a kingly figure of state, often shadowed by the magnificent bulk of the character of Falstaff in critical study, and indeed in general appreciation of the Henry IV plays, it's only once he's grown up that he gets a play dedicated to him. William Hazlitt wrote, As we like to gaze on a panther or a young lion in their cages in the tower, and catch a pleasing horror from their glistening eyes, their velvet paws and dreadless roar, so we take a very romantic, heroic, patriotic and poetical delight in the boasts and feats of our younger Harry, as they appear on stage and are confined to lines of ten syllables. Romantic, heroic, patriotic, and poetical indeed are the joys Hal brings us, and more. Indeed, we see all of these aspects in his journey, from his defeat of Hotspur to his waxing lyrical over his father's crown, to his emblematic depiction of Englishness in Henry V, and his wooing of Catherine. 
Now Beatrice is a character for whom my appreciation grows more and more upon each reread or rewatch of Much Ado. The witty banter between her and her sometime lover turned husband, eventually, is renowned for its genius among Bardolitas everywhere. But she's seldom considered out of conjunction with Benedict. When you take her out of the context she exists in, it's hard to tell exactly who Beatrice is, since her characterization is best depicted through her interactions, direct or indirect, with others, such as her passionate defense of Hero or her cool, monosyllabic kill Claudio to the man she's just declared her love to. It's clear, though, that she is a fierce, very strong woman. Hazlitt wrote of the two as happy materials for Shakespeare to work with, but critic Henry Norman Hudson wrote of Beatrice's wit as containing little reflection in rapid flashes, while Benedict's stems more from growth of thought and has all the pungency and nearly all the pleasantry of hers, with less spontaneous volubility. That's to say that Beatrice is more biting in her scorn and Benedict more reflective. But is this true? Going back to the Jade's trick quote, we can see that Beatrice has reflected on her previous interactions with Benedict, whatever those interactions were, and it gives an introspective depth to her character. However she is interpreted, there's no denying that she is one of the Bard's best creations. Lastly, let's dwell a little on Brutus, this unanswerable question of a character whom Shakespeare made the centre point of the play's moral crux. From his intimate scenes with Portia, to his bittersweet love of Rome that caused him to kill Caesar, his positive qualities shine through even in his darkest moments, in which he suggests the conspirators bathe their arms in blood. The question of his death remains ambiguous, given the uneasy view of death by suicide, given that the Almighty, as Hamlet said, set his canon against self-slaughter. 20th century critic Ernest Schanzer wrote of Brutus's clever self-construction in his funeral speech, modestly yet clearly making himself out to be a hero as he sets a charge against Caesar, with only vague suggestions of evidence in, had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves than that Caesar were dead and live all free men? The murder was preventative in his eyes, but does that make the ethical corner in which he stands the right one? As we never get to know Caesar properly on stage, it's impossible to say based on text alone. So many questions, listeners, and so many possible answers depending on interpretation. What do you think of these characters? Do comment on the podcast's social media posts on Twitter and Instagram to share your thoughts. For now, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Till next week!